I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. This is a powerful psalm. I look forward to uh, preaching on this text and sharing what God has to say from it. I trust that God will open our hearts and our eyes <coughs> so that his truth can convict us and change us for his glory. In my life, I make the observation that we are easily impressed by powerfully, seemingly exceptional and yet limited people. In a few weeks, many of us will be tuning in to watch the Olympic Games, uh, watching because we long to be amazed by extraordinary sacrifice and incredible human abilities. A few months ago, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors uh, were playing uh, in the NBA final series. And I was amazed at the amount of money that people would spend to see exceptional and amazing. Uh, I, I just quickly looked it up online. I've heard of tickets going for upwards of $50,000 courtside that was being sold on Craigslist. But the price, official price for courtside tickets at Game 2 was $18,053. $18, per seat, so that people could watch LeBron James and Stephon Curry go head-to-head -head and be amazed. There is this longing in our hearts to be amazed. On Thursday, I had the opportunity to go to the PGA Championship at Boltrasol up in Springfield, New Jersey. A friend invited me, had free tickets, called and said, do you want to go? And I said, yes, I want to go. <laughs> Easy decision. These tickets were face value $550 each. Okay, we were in the clubhouse, we had, it was like, it was bizarre, okay? It was just one of those weird days where you're kind of like, this is like crazy. And I, I as I was there, I was, I was amazed at my heart and the heart of thousands of people who had paid enormous amounts of money to be amazed, to uh, follow people around the course by the thousands, everyone straining to see an amazing shot or two by one of their young heroes, to see greatness or at least to be near it. Funny thing how people crammed into the lines where the golfers would walk out and try to touch Jordan Spieth and then turn around just awestruck. I didn't do that, okay? <laughs> As we watched, we were impressed by amazing gifts, but I have to say at the end of the day, due to the overwhelming heat of that day, it was all ultimately underwhelming. One of the most amazing moments of the day was Danny Lee on a par 5, 650-yard hole. The holes that I play, par 4s are 350, okay, for comparison. Hit his first shot, 380-some yards. Second shot, three feet from the flag, ready for a double eagle. He got up and set up for the putt. And by the way, he's the only player to ever reach that green in two shots. And when he, he went to hit the putt, and a thing rolled to the right of the cup, and history failed. And so there's this repeated experience that we have of longing to see amazing, but constantly being frustrated. In the last two weeks, people packed into stadiums for the RNC and the DNC. Uh, their purpose to affirm their candidate with the hope that their seemingly unique gifts, which is an astonishing thought to me, would somehow be used to rescue the country from whatever issues they believe are most important. 
only certainly to have their hopes and dreams frustrated by the weakness and inadequacy of people and empty promises, mostly because of the lack of character and the lack of power to deliver on promises made. Folks, that's the human story. That's why people get so discouraged. Because if you put your hope and trust in humanity, I guarantee you one thing. You will experience letdowns. Promises are good. The capacity to fulfill and to perform is weak and limited. And largely based on circumstances. The net effect of all of these things is is a sense of often disappointment and disillusionment. Of Hope deferred that the Proverbs say makes the heart sick, leaves it longing for fullness. In Psalm 20, uh, David says this. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. That is, implements of war, signs of power and strength. But he says, but we, the people of God, trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I hope as you contemplate your desire to see greatness, I hope that your gaze is averted heavenward. That's what David does in Psalm 139. He expresses deep amazement in the presence of God, focusing primarily on only two attributes of God, two characteristics or two manifestations of the greatness of God that leaves him saying, I I am stunned by how I am made. I am shocked. I am full of praise. In the presence of a God of whom I can only understand a very little bit of his character and characteristics. Of the one who is, as the book of Revelation says, is faithful and true. Not by choice. God is faithful and true because that's who he is. Folks, we need to understand this. That's why people let you down. They will promise to be faithful and true, but God is faithful and true. And there is a fundamental difference between the two. This morning as we work through the psalm, I want to encourage you to do what David does in this psalm. In this psalm, David does one thing, and that is he stands before God amazed. He contemplates, he meditates on who God is, and the result is that there is an amazement, a comfort, a sense of being relaxed in the presence of God that comes over him. I want that for my life. I want that for your life. I believe God wants that for all of us, that we would experience a a high degree of peace and pleasure in the presence of the God who is for us. The psalm is not filled with overwhelmingly deep theological abstractions, but they're kind of concrete thoughts about God that are meant to not stimulate the mind, but instead are meant to encourage the heart to fill us with emotion and deep feelings as we become conscious of the presence and piercing gaze of God himself. As you work your way through this psalm, you will find kind of this. David's heart is throbbing with affection and passion and love for God. And the psalm really is an overflow as he reflects on the presence and power of God that causes him to call out to God in ways that are powerful and amazing. So we'll focus on two fundamental attributes of God. Let's begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 1 through 6, and then we're going to work through in four simple sections. The God that David stood before, amazed. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, O Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, as you read through the first six verses, if, if I was to press you and say, what do you think is the overriding theme of these verses? You'd probably say it has something to do with the knowledge or the knowing of God. Uh, in my count, I just counted through it, six to eight times, there are words that reflect on knowledge or discernment or insight. And David is, is talking about those activities of God directed towards him personally. Now, there's a sense in which when I read this, when you say this honestly, God, you know me. There's something about that statement that should be undoing in its effect on us. It should be humbling in its effect on us. It should break us down as we stand before God. And, and, and the word pictures, I want us to be, be careful as we use words like learning or knowing or searching and discerning. They're the words that are used in this text. They are human activities, right, that are attributed to God, but I don't want you to think that God looks at Trish Reinhardt and says, oh, Okay, he doesn't discern your life in your heart. And God has never gone, you know, I didn't know that. Okay, his knowledge of us is not the result of searching and investigating and collecting details. His knowledge of us is immediate, total, complete, and perfect. You see, when people examine you, you can kind of fudge your answers. You can kind of walk a fine line. With God, I can't. So God's searching me and knowing me isn't that he's trying to uncover something that I have effectively hidden from him. It's a knowledge of my life is that, it, that is immediate and complete. And I think it's important for us to meditate on that because suddenly we realize there, it is foolish to talk about hidden sin. It's foolish to talk about secrets when I'm talking about my relationship with God. I am, I am as the one writer says in Scripture, I am naked before him. Everything is naked and open before the eyes of him with whom I must do business. I can't hide. And, and it's interesting how David works through this. He talks about sitting down and rising up. He talks about verse 3, my going out and my lying down. Both statements are just pictures of the bookends of the day. And the understanding would be something like this. God knows my day at the very beginning, at the very end. Therefore, he knows the entirety of it. Okay, that's the idea. When I get up and when I lie down, God is familiar with the entire picture of my life. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And the other thought in this text that is surprising, and it tells you about the omniscience of God, that he knows all things, past, present, and future. David says this, verse 4, Before a word is on my tongue... You, Lord, know it completely. So God has never thought, I can't believe Abby just said that to her mom. It, he, before it's on me, so what does it mean? You know it from afar. You know it way ahead of time. Here's, folks, the amazing thing. The God that knows my future sins still because of Christ loves me. That's what David is stunned by. I mean, David's resume is not pretty. It is, in fact, shocking in terms of its degradation and sinfulness. 
And yet he can talk about the searching gaze of God as something that to him is a blessing that he counts daily. God knows me. He uncovers me. He exposes me. I have a friend named uh, Stephen Christopher. He's a, a drone pilot in the United States Air Force. And I like hanging out with him, but I find it extremely frustrating because there's questions he won't answer because he can't answer them. I want to know everything they do with those things. I want to know all about them. I have an insatiable curiosity about that kind of military stuff, okay? And I remember him once saying, I, I was kind of asking about the, uh, like, like how full is the observation? How much can you actually see? To what degree of clarity of an individual? And here's the way he replied. He said, we can see people coming out of their house. And please forgive me for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyhow. He said, we can see people peeing in their front yard. Okay? I mean, like, we see, like, there's not something about people outside of their house that we are not aware of. That, that's scary. Right? In America, we're, we're paranoid. About, well, the government might know this. They might know that. They're checking this. They're checking that. I don't want my information out there. It's out there. And if you think you have it hidden, you may from men, but you can't from God. He is the eye in the sky that sees everything. It's all naked and exposed before him. Now, how does David respond to that? And I think the response is twofold. That's like, I don't know if I want to be around people that know me that well. I don't know if I want to be around people that's, I knew you were going to say that. Now, sometimes my wife is that good or my daughters are that good. I knew you would have that response. <laughs> okay. But David's saying, God knows, like, my, my thought patterns, God knows them. My sinful thoughts, he knows them. And my positive thoughts, he knows them. Here's what David says in verses 5 and 6. He, he says, you hem me in behind and before. You're all around me. You're all encompassing. And you lay your hand on me. You have intimate knowledge of my life. And, I, and this is the, the, the first thought here is that God's knowledge of your life is exhaustive. There's no pain that you experience that God doesn't know. There's no joy that you experience that God doesn't know. And there's no sin in your life that God is not aware of. And yet, he lays his hand on you and guides you. You see, folks, there was always this tension of walking with a holy God while I am still in my sinful flesh. There is this awkwardness of it. But it should be, as David says, this is amazing. And it should be transformational that God knows every part of me. I should be working at my life by the power of the Spirit to walk in truth and to know and to love God and to be conformed into His image. And I think I would apply this first part that David says, it's beyond me, I can't grasp it. With simp the simple application, you may have secrets with people, you cannot have secrets with God. You can't. I'm going to encourage you to take those things before him and to confess and to be forgiven. He knows and still loves. When God came in the cold of the day in Genesis chapter 3 to the rebels in the Garden of Eden, he came full well knowing. He asked Adam and Eve a question, where are you? Because he knew where they were. It was a means of exposing, getting them to confess so that they could come back into the place where they say, I am amazed at the knowledge of God, his thorough understanding of my life. The God who has never been caught off guard, who has never been caught by surprise, the one before whom everything is naked and open. Let that thought 
trouble your heart, but let it encourage your heart. God's knowledge of my life is exhaustive. Move on with me then to the next section of this psalm where David now reflects on the inescapable presence of God. So I have exhaustive knowledge, and it it should not surprise us that if God has exhaustive knowledge of all of my life, that he is inescapably present in all of my life. And these are the two thoughts. If you like theological words, this is a text about the, uh, the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God, that he knows everything and that he is everywhere present. And it's fascinating how they go hand in hand. Now, this text then moves into, and I, I can't get the song out of my mind. John, you remember us singing this song years ago? How many of you remember the song? What was that called? Yeah, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Do you remember us singing that? Like every, the whole time I'm studying this song or this text, that song is almost tormenting me because I couldn't get the, the tune out of my mind. But th- this is a captivating text, passage of scripture, about the inescapable presence of God. Here's what David says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And as you read that, you've got to be saying to yourself, well, hang on a second. Is David saying he wants to be out of the presence of God or that he's delighted in the presence of God? And I think you have to think about that for yourself. My answer is it depends. Right? It depends. There are times that the presence of God is glorious and desirable. There are times that it evokes great fear. He knows me completely. I have no secrets with God. And so the psalmist asked the question. I think it moves in two directions. I think it's positive and I think it's potentially negative. Now, I, I thought of this illustration with my, my daughter years ago, our daughter Erica, our middle daughter, who's probably the most interesting of our children. She... When she was about four years old, we were at my, uh, at my uh, brother-in-law's house, and all of a sudden, Erica was missing. Okay, so Erica is four years old. We're at my in-law's house, and we can't find Erica. Like, Erica's missing, okay? I'm like, where could she possibly be? Finally, we found her behind this lazy boy recliner in the corner of the living room with my wife's purse, her shirt off, and lipstick. And she's just enjoying the soft touch of the lipstick thing on her body. Now, here's the question. Why was Erica hiding? Right? I mean, it's, she, she knew that what she was doing wasn't acceptable, but she was enjoying it anyhow. Okay? She's got this look at this big-cheeked little girl, like, like, shocked that we found her behind the chair, trying to hide. I mean, hide, hide, hiding from your parents, it's impossible. But it gave her some degree of comfort to do what she wanted to do. Okay, And when David reflects on the presence of God, I think it's like that. There are times that our daughters would get night frights and cry, and we'd be in their room in a heartbeat, and they loved our presence. In that moment, Erica didn't like it. In the, in the night fright moment, she loved it. And that's us, isn't it? That's what David is, is, is kind of wrestling through. And there's two things that David is going to conclude cannot separate you from God. Two things. One is distance. Notice what he says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? These are rhetorical questions. God is inescapable. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I go to the highest place and the lowest place. In this context, Sheol was probably talking about the place of the dead, the the grave. 
If I'm at the extreme height or if I'm at the extreme low. And then he says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, furthest to the east in the land of Israel, right? And if I make my uh, rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, which would be the, the far end of the Mediterranean from a human perspective, what they could see, the setting of the sun the beginning of the day to the end of the day and the full scope of the sun's path, David says, no matter where I go in all of that, you were there. Distance can't separate me from God. Even there, he says, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. I love this picture of the hand or the arm of God. Throughout the Psalms, the hand and the arm is a symbol of the power and might of God. Okay, and let this settle in. I, 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 th- I thought of this in, in just various simple circumstances of life where you're with someone and you put your hand on them simply as, I don't do that with total strangers, but when I'm drawing near to someone, getting to know someone, I, I find myself, I don't think about it. It's just a natural expression of, of affection or of affirmation or of approval. It's just, it's natural. What is David saying? Your right hand is is there on me. I sense your affection and approval and guidance and your right hand will hold me to stabilize in the, in the place of apparent distance. When God seems far away, what is David saying? I sense, I feel, I know the presence of God. Distance can't separate me from God. The next verse, he goes on to say, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light, the light will become night around me. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? The light would become light around me. Why? Because even the darkness will not be dark to you. And the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. It's just a, David's kind of rolling through this thought that to God, dark and light are the same. To Tim Hoff, they are very distinguishable. Okay? I, over the last couple of years, I had worked some long hours. There were many times where I simply had to stop working because darkness was a limitation to my efforts. So no matter what skills I was bringing to the table in a circumstance, if it was dark, I could not exercise that. Now here's the amazing thought. God has never been put off by circumstances. Yesterday, the PGA Championship, with all its millions of dollars being spent, was shut down by a thunderstorm. Everybody, go home. Okay, God has never been limited by the circumstances of life. And what is David saying? Distance can't separate me from God, and darkness, which in the ancient world would have been foreboding. It wasn't a world of ambient light where you were never really truly in darkness. I remember as a kid going to Crystal Cave. You get down in the cave, and they say, okay, for the first time in your life, you're going to experience total darkness. Okay, and I honestly, I probably had never experienced it before. They said, put your hand in front of your face. We all did that. And then they killed the lights. You couldn't see anything. The darkness is a category of that which is foreboding. It creates fear, a sense of being out of control. And David says to God, God, darkness is as light to you. You are unlimited by that. So God's inescapable presence is manifest in very beautiful ways. I thought of this text then in light of the gospel. What David is saying, there is no way for me to be separated from God. Not distance, not darkness. And then I thought of Christ. I, as a child of God, cannot be God forsaken. 
but it's what I deserve for my sin. On the cross, the Son of God cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther called that God forsaken of God. What a mystery. Folks, there was something on the cross that Jesus Christ experienced so that I would never have to experience the consequences of my sin. He experienced a void between himself and eternal Father. Do I understand it? No. But I I, I do understand theologically what's happening. To endure the full consequence of my sin, Jesus needed to know what it would be to be separated, to, to experience death in that Genesis sense of spiritual separation from Father as he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that we could, in the name of Christ, come boldly to the throne of grace and find hope and acceptance, the removal of distance and the darkness of our sin. That's how this psalm moves towards the gospel. What could separate does not because of the beautiful character of God and the love of God in his son, Jesus Christ. It's for that reason that James can say in James chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Folks, that is an amazing statement. I remember preaching on that text years ago and we used the idea of the precious proximity of God. The message translation says it this way, draw near to God, he'll be there in a second. When you need God and his help, darkness and distance are no limitation. Any parent sitting in this room has probably experienced a time when your distance between you and your child became a limitation on your capacity to help. Not your desire, but your capacity. That's a fearful place to be. I remember my one daughter in college calling me in a circumstance and It put serious fear in me. It also caused me to realize that I am so severely limited. God has never been at the expense of distance and darkness. I don't know what you're going through because sometimes we talk about our difficult times as dark times. Right? Because what are we saying? God seems distant and he seems unseeable. And David's writing to say, that is never the case. You may feel that, but that is never reality if you know him. Powerful, awesome, blessed truth that David reveals for us here. Now, the next text that I want you to consider is verse 13 and following. And it's, it's, this is a follow-up on the presence of God, inescapable presence. What David is going to do, he's going to reach back in time to when he was in utero in the womb. And it's a fascinating picture. He says, for you created my inmost being, my inner, you, God, you made me. You knit me together in my mother's womb, which in the ancient world, okay, aside 4D sonograms today, okay, in the ancient world, you never knew what was going on inside the womb. You just knew the result of what was going on inside the womb. You never could know how glorious and amazing what's happening internally is. I mean, I'm small-minded, okay? So being at my daughter's birth, Rebecca being at her birth blew me away. 
I mean, I wasn't even thinking about all that was going on inside. I'm learning that from them as they're pregnant and sending us updates weekly, what's changing internally. And that amazes me. But that birth was an amazing to me miracle. And that's not even the half of what happens. That birth process let Tim Hoff kind of saying, whoa, I can't take anymore. Okay? And David's kind of like, you don't know the half. And so David goes in to now unpack for us. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You were intimately involved. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. Somehow God had exposed to David the glory of what happens in, in, the, in, in the womb. And David is just saying, I am, I am amazed by that. And it's just skimming the surface. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Now what David is saying, you could see inside what no one else could see that longed to see but couldn't see. God could. And God did. When I was woven together in what was called the depths of the earth, the the picture is the, the uterus as a dark place, meaning unseen, unrevealed. David says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, my early days before my mom knew that I existed. You knew. You knew. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Folks, I want you to think about that. All the days ordained for me before one of them came to be. God has never heard the announcement of pregnancy. God sent out the message. He knew it. He knew it. God's, and I think this is the summary, God's care for your personal well-being in life began before you were aware of it. In the womb. Before you knew to know. He knew. And before, before, God was there. See, I am so bound by time. I can't talk about before because I wasn't there. In this text, you see God who is there. And then I, I, I love the way that in the midst of this, David kind of explodes. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. As he meditates on the activity of God, there, and, 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 and the presence of God in the most intimate place in life. David just, he says, I am fearfully, wonderfully made. I, I am stunned. I am amazed. I'm shocked. You saw my unformed body, all that I would be, my full potential, my hair color, my eye color, my aptitudes, my smile, my gifts, my talents. My height, my nose, thought of that. My motion sickness, my laugh, my intellect, my accent, my limitations, my capacities, my affections. And you could keep going. God saw all of that in that very small you. 17 and 18, David is overwhelmed. And he says this, he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How 
vast, how enormous is the sum of them? And he's talking about this knowledge of God and presence of God now both coming together in a very specific area of life. And David says, that is amazing. That is precious. And it's vast where I'd account them, David says. They would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And, and you, you got to look at that. If I was to count them like the grains of the sand, it would outnumber that. And David says, when I am awake, I'm still with you. And so the question is, what does he mean when he says, when I awake, I'm still with you? Is it, and I'll just give you a postulation, okay? This is not, this is an attempt to interpret the text. I think it's something like this. David lays in bed at night thinking about God. His heart explodes in worship. and he, He begins to think about the ways that God loves him. The vast thoughts of God, like And the word precious literally means precious metal as compared to iron. Okay, that's the idea. How precious are your thoughts for me? Folks, I want you to think about something. There are a whole lot of people on this planet. And when David talks about God, he talks about a personal relationship and a personal being known by God. That's amazing. And I get the idea that David lays in bed at night counting the blessings of God. And he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he can just keep on counting. I am still with you in your presence, amazed. Folks, I think that's the effect of standing before God and meditating on God. Take these two attributes of the knowledge of God and the presence of God. Let them begin to settle into your heart and you will experience change and transformation. I think that's what David is saying. I'll be overwhelmed. I will be deeply encouraged as I meditate on the greatness of God. There are seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on the earth. Brother saying, thank you for that enlightenment. I'll be thinking about that. Or it's just an impossible number to grasp, and it's obviously done by estimates. Do you realize that there are more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on the earth? That is a stunning, recently uncovered fact and God created all of that and as I've said to you before what are you worried about what do I think God doesn't know in my life that I have to rush into his presence and make him know I don't have to make him know I just have to go and acknowledge it and he's going to say I know I know and there is something when you face a difficult circumstance there's something about running to someone who can help who says I'm already aware of it There's something about that that says, all right, good, you got this covered. Folks, I want to make this observation about this text, and it's not to be a lengthy discussion on the topic, but it's very simply this. If God is at work intimately in the womb, then to enter into that realm with destructive intent is to declare war against God. God himself. That thought never came to my mind as I studied this text before, but this morning that hit me like a ton of bricks. To go into the realm where God is working, to disrupt what God is doing, is to declare war on God himself. It is to be an affront to the work that God is doing. Life to God is precious. But I need to realize that all of my sin 
is rebellion against God. It is disloyalty to the king of kings. And the last portion of this text, which I will say is an uncomfortable section of scripture. David says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you blood, you who are bloodthirsty. That is to be murderous intent. They speak with evil intent, meaning they, they are malicious in their desire. So you can start, kind of start to get why David speaks so strongly. He's talking about overt categories of rebellion against the rightful rule of God. Disregard for the commands of God. What is that? That is rebellion. That is ultimate disloyalty. And what is David saying? In this, I am saying that the enemies of God are my enemies. That's what he's saying. God's opponents are my opponents. And it's really a, it's a declaration of loyalty. The other thing I want you to notice is that David leaves justice in the hands of God. He doesn't take it into his own hands to settle the scores that one day God will settle. Okay, but it is, I think, a strong warning to those who walk contrary to God's ways, who show disregard for the commands and directives of God. It's a call to all of us to see that with God, all sin is rebellion. All sin, all of us, is treasonous. It's disregard for the rightful ruler in our lives. And I think David very strongly here and with clear categories demonstrates an opposition to those who in this context hate God and are disloyal to the rightful king. And I think in that sounding, that warning, there is an expression of the gospel to turn, to come to the God who knows you, who loves you, who came and sacrificed for you and wants to have with you a personal relationship. Now, the, uh, the, the ultimate outcome of this text comes out in verse 21. And I want you to notice that the word, you have searched me from verse 1, is carried forward into verse 23. So this begins to act as bookends. Lord, you have searched me, and I'm asking that you would continue to search and know my heart. Now, what's going on here? I think what's going on is David has been exposed in relationship to hidden sins in the past in his life, hasn't he? He's experienced what it is for um, Samuel to look at him and say, David, you're the man. You're the one with hidden issues. And God is calling you out. If David says to God, God, search me, try me, know my inmost thoughts, what is presumed in that? What is presumed in that is that as God would uncover for David, would expose for David categories of sinfulness in his heart, there would be an explosion of appropriate grace from God. And when we confess, he forgives See, folks, when you think about the incredible knowledge of God and the inescapable presence of God, when you think about that and meditate on that, it will begin to undo you. There will be a level of discomfort because you're going to say, God, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. I'm a sinful young person. And you will realize that I need to avail myself of the grace of God. I think that's what David's doing here. God, search me. Show me. Why? So I can bury it? No, so I can own it, confess it, and be forgiven. That's what David says in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Away with secret sin. Away with things that bind and hold us. The only secrets you have are secrets with people. And the maintenance of those secrets is like holding balls underwater. It requires a lot of effort to keep something that wants to expose itself. It's a lot of effort to keep it under 
ground. I would encourage you today, give up the fight. Let go. And let God birth those things. Let him forgive those things. Let him redeem and restore. That's what God aims to do. That's why David says, God, if you're that awesome and incredible and affectionate and loving and forgiving and gracious, and search me and know my heart. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And I love what he says. And lead me in the way everlasting. There is, at the end of this psalm, what I would call the, the aim of David's heart. The, the, the why in calling for searching is that he would experience conviction and, and a greater proximity with the God who is holy. That's what he wants. But the, the aim of it is so that I might be led in the way everlasting, that I might enjoy you more fully. Folks, that's the end game of forgiveness. That's the end game of walking with God, that we would, we would, we would know him, we would love him, that the, the, the goal of our life would be that God would let us know everything that hinders our enjoyment of his presence, guidance, and affections. That we would go to God on a regular basis saying, God, show us that our sin is in fact war against you. Forgive me for my rebellion and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, when you read that way everlasting, in your mind there should click an echo of Psalm 23. Right at the end of Psalm 23, what does David say? In light of the shepherd who takes him by the hand and guides him, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And at the end of those days, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because I'm a perfect man? No. Because I am, by God's grace, a forgiven man, loved by God. And what does David do? He stands before God and he gazes. He gazes, he meditates, he thinks. And then he's filled with amazement. So my call to you this morning is to stand before God amazed. Take time to meditate on the attributes of God, on deep theology that feeds powerful affections because the affections of your life are what change you. What you love will determine who you become. It determines today who you are right now. If you don't like where you are, examine what you love. And James, James said this. He said, friendship with the world, the system, is enmity with God. And when I have enmity with God, I don't have the affections that bring joy and pleasure and relief in life. And I want to encourage you this morning, read through this psalm, and at the end of the day say, God, search me, try me. Whatever's out of sync, forgive me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me know life to its fullest. Folks, the, the way that Christians best glorify God is not getting on a political stump the way that we best glorify God, right, is to love and enjoy him forever. To be, lay hold of his hand and be led into life everlasting. And God's not talking about in the future only. He's talking about today. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and that you might have it more abundantly today. That's the experience of the Christian. Experiencing a fruitful life by the power of the Spirit of God. living in the presence of the God who can never overpromise and will never underperform. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I pray, God, that this psalm will settle into our hearts, that these truths about who you are 
we would find them transformational truths. And that we would live in light of your gaze before the one with whom all things are naked and open. Lord, if there is something we need to confess, I pray, God, that we will earnestly and boldly confess and find that there is hope and restoration and forgiveness. I'm thankful, God, that David could assume on your grace but not presume on your grace. So, God, let our confessions this morning be true and real and therefore life-altering. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand together as we sing our closing song.